How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Calls our souls to long, yes, even faint, for the courts of the Lord. Calls our hearts and our flesh to sing for joy to you, our living God. Lord, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. So, Lord, bring us this morning to your altar, into your very presence this morning, for you are the Lord of hosts. You are our King. You are our God. And only in you can we find our home and our place of rest. Bless us, Lord, that we may dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Bless us, Lord, that we may find our strength in you. As we journey through this barren land of our sojourning and pilgrimage, bring us by the power of your Spirit to fresh springs of life, that we might be refreshed and go from strength to strength, and one day, on that glorious day, that we may appear before you. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, you are our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Help us affirm with full confidence and joy this morning this truth that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, I pray that our heart will say that we would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of our God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For you, O Lord God, are a sun and a shield to us. You alone bestow favor and honor upon us. No good thing, no good thing, Lord, do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, bless us this morning by granting us great faith that we may trust in these truths and that we may trust in you. We ask this in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. Amen and amen. Have I done enough? Maybe the question that haunts your mind, though you've lived with it for so long, you don't realize that it's even there anymore. Have I done enough? You see, this seems to be the question that the pastor who's writing this letter to the book of Hebrews to his congregation, he seems to be addressing this question to his congregation because his congregation is concerned. They're now Christians who are Jewish Christians. They grew up in the, in, the, uh, in the workings and in the elaborate system 
of accessing their God through a tabernacle and through sacrifices and through washings and through rituals and through all kinds of regulations. And they've been doing all of this work. And now their, their lives have been altered because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And their question is this. Is there a way that we can... Can, can, we, can we put our foot on both sides of the fence? Can we live a little bit in the Judaism of the day and keep doing some of the things around the tabernacle because that's where we've met God so many times. That's where God has been with us for all of our years as, as Jewish people. And also, can we put our foot on the other side of the fence where we are receiving Christ and accepting Him? Can we live in both of those worlds? Now, there were some in this congregation that this pastor was speaking to that he was fearful were not, on, not wanting to simply go with both your foot on both ends of the fence, but actually to go back to the Judaism, go back to the Jewish rituals and regulations because it was so familiar to them. And they struggled with this question. Have I done enough to be before my God one day? You see, this is exactly the question I believe that haunts all of those who seek to live in our society today um, that seek... Let me give you a couple of terms that may help us understand this. The idea is that what these people were considering, these Jewish Christians were considering, was a a, a philosophy or an idea of pluralism. They were wanting, they, they saw two different fates, and they said, you know what, let's do both of them and hope that we kind of hit the right one eventually. We don't know which one's really right, so let's, let's do both of them. It's, it, it's, it's, it's the same idea of the pluralism that we have today. Many of you have seen those bumper stickers that say, coexist, where there's all these different faiths, and let's all get together and understand that we are all willing to coexist and understand one another and, and get together. The pluralism is this. Let's shoot the arrows at the barn, and then we can draw the targets around them when we figure out which one's right. Right? Let's, let's throw everything we got at all of them, and then hopefully some of those things are correct. We indeed live in the same kind of society, same kind of thinking that I believe this pastor was addressing when his congregation was considering, can I, can I live with my feet on both sides of the fence in the Judaism of my, my past and in the Christianity of what God has done for me in Christ? How can I live with both? But many of us aren't there this morning. We don't have the coexist bumper stickers on our car. I wouldn't know because I'm usually in here when you guys pull up. So, and I'm usually in here when you leave, so I wouldn't know either way. But I think many of us also deal with the same question. Have you done enough to please God this week? You see, we ask ourselves those questions, don't we? Have we done enough to find favor with our God? Do we come this morning with hands that are dirty as we worship? And our mind constantly is going back to the sin that constantly is on us, that's always there, that keeps reminding us that we're not adequate. Have we done enough for our God? I'm not talking about the idea that uh, the primitive society where people are at the foot of the uh, volcano and once a year they've got to go get all their stuff and even 
the most valuable things, and they go throw it in the volcano to appease this, this volcano that's in our village. That's how a lot of times people think of faith and religion and things of the Lord. And this morning, as we look at our text, this is really what many may see as they look at verses nine through, excuse me, chapter nine, verses one through ten. They look at this amazing appeasement, this going through all of these rituals and regulations and systems and an elaborate way of trying to please their God. And they think of it in the same line, the same way as the, the, um, the tribe person that goes and throws their goods into the volcano. But friends, that very idea shows us that all of society, and we know this to be true when we travel and, and see different histories and different things, everybody's got a desire within them, an eternity in their heart. They've got a desire for a God. And you this morning have filled that with something, <laughs> whether it's your own desire and hearts and ambitions and things, whether it may be a coexist kind of philosophy and faith, or whether it's a rules and regulations, I'm going to, my good needs to outweigh my bad. You, you, you've developed that kind of understanding before God. And this morning, the question that I want to ask, and I think that the, the, the congregation here is asking and that his pastor is addressing is, have we done enough? Well, this pastor turns here in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and he makes the comment, he makes the assumption that, or assesses that, there is in fact rules and regulations. There's actually a place where they can go and meet with God. Do you see that in verse 1 of chapter 9? He says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now the reason that is being mentioned is because the verse just preceding that, it's actually in chapter 8, verse 13, and the pastor says to them that this first covenant, the Old Testament and all the rules and regulations that go with it, he says in verse 13 of chapter 8, in speaking of this new covenant, the regulations and the old way of doing things in the Old Testament with the sacrifices and the washings, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in what way is this old covenant or this, 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 uh, this old covenant, this old way of doing things, this first way of doing things in the Old Testament, in what way is that becoming obsolete? Or vanishing away. How is it becoming that? Well, he begins by showing us in chapter 9 and 10 how that is becoming obsolete. First, he's going to deal with the place, the sanctuary. And then he's going to deal later on in chapter 9 into chapter 10 with the sacrifices. This morning, we're going to look at the sanctuary or the tent of tabernacle. And so this morning, I want us to notice here in verse 1 of chapter 9, he speaks of two particular things. He speaks of, it says, now, even the first covenant meaning the Old Testament, the first covenant that was established, the way they did the sacrifices and all that stuff. It had regulations for worship. Do you see that? And then secondly, it had a, an earthly place of holiness. Now this pastor makes these two points, and then he flips them around, and he's going to deal with them in reverse order. So we're going to deal with first this earthly place of holiness, and then secondly, we're going to deal with the regulations for the worship. And so that's the plan this morning. The plan is that we're going to look at this tabernacle, this sanctuary, this place that they were to go. For what reason? So that they can listen to this, so they can be with their God. 
You see, this tabernacle, the sanctuary, was a place where God's people were able to meet with their God. God was actually in the midst of them when this tabernacle was established and placed there in the midst of God's people. This tent or tabernacle was not just a... um, We think of, in the Old Testament, we think of a a tent. Um, It's not like the tents that we have today. This was a large tent, a large structure. And uh, it had all kinds of beams and other things. And this actual tabernacle or tent was used during the time when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. And they were, in fact, doing that. They were wandering in the wilderness. So what they would do is they would set up this tabernacle and put all the things there. And then they would camp all of God's people, the Israelites and the different tribes, would camp out like a wagon wheel around the tabernacle with the tabernacle or the tent right in the middle. In other words, God was where? In the midst of his people. In the middle of his people. And now they're going to be moving 40 or 50 miles down the road to go somewhere else because they're wandering in the wilderness. They take everything up. They pack everything up. They take it with them. And then they set up. And the next place they set up, they set up this tabernacle and put it all together. And it was a tent where they would constantly place that first. They would set up the, the tent of tabernacle. And then all the other tribes would go around it. And it was an indicator. If you could fly over that spot during the time of wandering in the wilderness... It would look like, it would, it, would be, it would be interesting, it would be distinct. The tabernacle would be in the midst, and then all of God's people would be on the outside, around it, and camping out around it so that God would be in the midst of his people. And this tabernacle was specifically designed in a way that God had told them to design it. This wasn't something that Moses just made up. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, which is the previous chapter, it speaks of the fact that Moses was about to erect this tent, and he was instructed by God, it says in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. And when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. And so God is establishing, when we go through these things that are in this tabernacle, this wasn't just stuff that they thought, well, this is a nice piece of furniture, and I don't need it in my house, so I'll bring it and stick it in the tabernacle for a while no these these elements these pieces of furniture were unique they had been given by god to moses to put in there for a particular reason and we're going to look at those and so we see this morning first this earthly place of holiness and then secondly the regulations for worship and i want us to consider these in uh, in, in these three points this morning these three points and here's the outline first a sanctuary prepared a sanctuary prepared verses 1 through 5. A sanctuary prepared, verses 1 through 5. The services performed, verses 6 and 7. And then the Spirit's purpose. The Spirit's purpose, verses 8 through 10. Sanctuary prepared, verses 1 through 5. The services performed, verses 6 and 7. And then the Spirit's purpose, verses 8 through 10. So we see this morning... This earthly place of holiness. Notice with me, if you will, first, the sanctuary prepared. This earthly place of holiness, as we see in verse 2, was first and foremost, it was a tent. You see that? It was a tent. It was actually uh, a tabernacle. What's called a tabernacle. It is distinct from the temple. When we use the word temple, we're talking about later on, King Solomon built a big stone place that held a lot of these items and did the exact same thing. It was, it was God's presence in the midst of his people. That was a temple and it was more permanent. I believe what's being spoken of here is, not, is, is a tent, and I believe it's the, re, for the, reason, for, the reason is, is because it's temporary. It's one that will move around. So here we have a tent being mentioned. This tent was prepared or is being created or being built. 
And then we have the first section. You see that in verse 2? The first section. The first section that we go into. And if you can imagine, just think with me for a moment. We're going into this tabernacle. Now, we've already passed through what's called the outer courts. In our passage, it doesn't mention the outer courts at all. We don't see anything about the altar or the big sea, which they can wash their hands and bathe and, and, and cleanse with outside. I believe the reason that they're not mentioning anything about the outer courts is because pretty much everybody could see the outer courts. They knew what was out there. But the tabernacle itself, nobody entered except for the priest and only the high priest into the most, most inner part. And so the idea here is that we're discussing things right here that though the Jewish Christians of this day that the Hebrews pastor was talking to here in our passage, though they would have been aware of them, it would have been very unlikely they would have even saw these things. They just knew that they were in the tabernacle because that's what they were told. And so here what we see is that this was a tent that was prepared in the first section. Some translations say the first tent, as if there was two tents, but there's actually one tent with two different sections in it. So the ESV does a good job of trying to distinguish that and make that clear. Verse 2, it says that a tent was prepared, the first section, in which, and we see two particular things, taking, uh, two things in this particular section, this first section. First is the lampstand. See that? In which were the lampstand, and then second, the table. Now, on that table, there was the bread of presence. So if you walk in, you would walk into the, the tabernacle or this tent from the front door, and the front door would be, be facing east. And the idea was that when you look to your left, the priest would look to his left, he would see the lampstand. This lampstand is also known as, some of you have heard it as, the menorah, right? It's a seven-sticked candlestick, and basically it's so shaped that it looks like a budding almond branch. And it is there. It's very beautiful, made out of gold. And it is constantly lit. And that's to the left of the priest that goes into the tabernacle. And that's the lampstand, which is spoken of here in verse 2, where there's a lampstand. And then secondly, to the right of that priest, as he walks into the front door, is the table. And this table isn't a very big or large table. It's a very small table. But it's beautiful and unique. It's made out of, it's, it's overlaid with gold. And it says on there that there's the bread of presence in or on that table. The bread of presence is actually 12 loaves of bread. We think of loaves of bread as beautiful, round loaves, right? The idea of loaves here look more like pita bread, honestly, than it does loaves that we think of. So there's these, these 12, six stacked on each side, usually is what you see when you look at this in a picture. Um, six pieces of bread or loaves of bread stacked on top of each other, right beside each other. So six on one side, six on the other. And it's typically what would happen is that the priest would come in every week and would switch out the oldest 12 or oldest six loaves of bread. And every week they would switch these out. And so this was the bread of presence. And so to the left was the lampstand. To the right was this bread of presence on this table. Now, why am I telling you all this? We're going to get there, okay? I'm not going to go into all kinds of details, but I do want to give you at least what I believe that these, these, this audience would have understood at least. Okay, So we're not going to go into, the, if you want to read all the details, go to Exodus 25 and start reading and read through. You'll see all the details of this. Now the lampstand was, symbol, was to symbolize that God is in fact the light, of, the, the, the light of life for the people of God. That only God could light the way. It's interesting because in the wilderness, how are they guided? Right? Cloud by day and fire by night. 
God was lighting the way. God was the one who was directing them and guiding them in every way. The menorah with the seven lamps constantly lit was constantly a reminder that God was lighting the way. It also provided light for the inside of this tent that was covered by possibly up to seven layers of skins, so it was very dark inside. So the lampstand was representing God as the light of life. This table represented God's fellowship with his people. During this day and age, and even today, if you want to have fellowship with people, you invite them over to your home or maybe to a restaurant, and you sit at table together, and you fellowship, and you do more than just eat. You also enjoy one another. This idea of this table in this, um, in this place was considered an idea that God is fellowshipping with his people. God is in their midst, and he desires fellowship with them. And then, of course, this bread was speaking of the fact that God was providing for them. That God was one who provided for them and provided for their needs. Now, this particular place, this first section, as we see in verse 2, was called the holy place. You see that? The holy place. The holy place. Now, the reason it was considered the holy place is because not everybody could go in there. You couldn't even stick your head in to take a look. Only the priests could go in there, and only after them preparing themselves could they do that. But this was a busy place, and they actually did a lot there, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But this place represented the fact that God is a God of otherness. He is distinct. He is transcendent. God was in their midst, yes, but they couldn't approach God in any way they wanted to. And we need to understand this morning that as we consider this passage, that these people put a lot of energy and effort into understanding how they approach their God. I mean, Exodus, as I said, isn't it interesting that Exodus chapters 25 all the way through the end of Exodus goes into incredible detail of how God can be in the midst of, their, of his people, right? All these details of how the tabernacle was supposed to look, how each piece was supposed to be made, uh, what kind of material was supposed to be done, how, many, how long the beams were and how big the box was going to be and all these different things. It's amazing how many chapters that God dedicates to, this is, I want to be in the midst of my people and this is what you need to do in order to do that. And listen to this. God dedicates two chapters to creating everything that is. Isn't that interesting in comparison? God, God gives us two chapters of how he created everything, and then he gives us all these chapters in the end of Exodus to show how he can dwell in the midst of his people. Friend, it's not a light thing when we speak of dwelling in the midst of our God. It's not something we can just kind of flippantly go to. It's a profound and amazing thing. And God himself is providing access for his people to himself. First by this holy place. And then what we see here as we move to verse 3 is this second section or the second tent. It's actually the second part of the same tent. Behind a second, verse 3, behind the second curtain. There's a curtain here. So they're in the holy place, this priest. And then there's a curtain. And that curtain's dividing off the second section and the second section is a, is a special place. It's called the second section, and it's called the most holy place. The most holy place. This is the spot on earth that's most holy of all the spots on earth in the understanding of the Jewish faith. Now, as we see here in verse 4, it says there, as you're entering from the holy place to the most holy place, you're going to have to pass this thing in verse 4 saying, the ha and having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So as you're passing 
the curtain, it actual, it's, it's interesting because the, the golden altar, though it looks like from our translation that it's actually in the most holy place, it's actually right beside the curtain just outside of the holy place. But because the altar, the golden altar, is actually there for the purpose of burning incense, the idea is that the incense fills that most holy place first because it's smaller. And so its use, in other words, what it's used for, is to fill the most holy place full of incense and smoke. And so that's why they most think that they probably put it with, um, with the most holy place in way of the thing because it's actually used there. But you pass by this golden altar in verse 4, and when you go into the most holy place, there's one piece of furniture, and that one piece of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, this Ark of the Covenant is beautiful both inside and out. And we see a description of that here. Covered from, on all sides with gold. It's a beautiful ark. Every one of you, well, I say every one of you, the vast majority of you have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant in your head, don't you? And you all know where you got it from. And it wasn't from the Bible. I will say that typically um, they, the, the people that did that movie did a lot of research, and that Ark actually is very close to what they think the Ark of the Covenant looked like. And so you have a pretty good picture of what this is. So you, you have that in your mind's eye, right? And so we see this ark here, and it's covered on all sides by gold, in which, and then, then it speaks of the three things that are inside this ark. The first thing is a golden urn holding manna, holding manna. And so this golden urn is holding manna. It's inside the ark. The reason it's inside the ark, it says in, in Exodus chapter 16, God tells Moses, let an omer... Of it, meaning the manna, be kept throughout your generations. Why? So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so this urn is holding this manna of which God provided for his people when they were in the wilderness. And that's a testimony to the fact God will provide. God will provide. When they were starving out in the wilderness, all they knew how to do was make bricks and mud because they were in Egypt building, building who knows what. They go out in the wilderness and they almost starved. And God says, I'll give you manna to sustain you. In other words, God gave them their daily bread. And only their daily bread. And God provided for them. So this urn is filled with the manna that God had given to them. That's in the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to be carried in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's provision for them in the wilderness. The second thing that's, being, that's in the Ark of the Covenant here in the tabernacle, as it says in verse 4, says the urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. Aaron's staff that budded. Now, this is an interesting story. You can look at the whole thing in Numbers chapter 17. But basically, Aaron was being confronted concerning his leadership among God's people. All the fathers of the households wanted to be the leaders of everybody. They wanted to, this is my, they were being very tribal. This is my family and my household, and I'm going to take care of mine. And Aaron has no say in that. So what ended up happening was Moses asked all the households to bring their staffs. All the different tribes of Israel, bring your staffs, and Aaron's going to bring his. And we're going to place it into the, uh, into the tent overnight. And I will show you which one is going to have the authority over all the different, all the different tribes. In the morning, what takes place is that the staff of Aaron budded and all the others was laid there. I'm talking about a stick here that's cut off. It budded. And so what ended up happening was, in Numbers chapter 17, verse 10, 
And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. So what is this staff that had budded that was Aaron's? What is it doing in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, not only is God showing that he's provided for them through the urn that had the manna in it, but he also showing that God provided a distinct and a particular authoritative leadership in the wilderness concerning Aaron. And that Aaron was the man that God had called to lead in this particular way. And that God had done that for his people. So not, not only had God provided, but he also given them not only food, but also leadership. And then thirdly and finally, what's inside the ark is not only the urn, not only the stick, but also the tablets of the covenant, which are indeed the Ten Commandments. The two stone tablets that God, with his finger, wrote the Ten Commandments onto these tablets and that Moses brought down out of the mountain. These Ten Commandments, these two tablets, were in fact in the Ark of the Covenant. What we find, interestingly enough, is that these three things are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible as being inside the Ark of the Covenant. When we get the Ark of the Covenant into the temple later on in Solomon's day, what we find is that these two tablets, the Ten Commandments, actually are in the Ark of the Covenant, but the staff and the urn with the manna are actually sitting outside the Ark of the Covenant. What seems to be the case, and what most would say, is because it was traveling around a lot, they just didn't unpack. They just kept it in the box. And... um, They kept the urn with the manna. They kept the stick in the box. They kept the Ten Commandments in the box. They didn't take it out every time. They kept it right there in the Ark of the Covenant. And when they traveled, it all was right there in the Ark. Once they got the Ark into the temple, which was the permanent residence, they were able to pull the urn and the staff out, and it actually laid beside the Ark of the Covenant. So you'll see some different things as you read through. Now, why is God giving these people these things? He's showing them that he's going to provide for them. He's showing them that he's going to lead them. And he's showing them that he's going to give them a moral parameter to live by. In such a way, not just so that they can be moral, but so that they can display the glory of God. These are the Ten Commandments. And so keeping this law of God, they reflect their God. And they, in so doing, reflect God's glory. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. Section number one, the holy place. Section number two, the most holy place. It says in verse 5, above the Ark of the Covenant, above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. We've seen this again. We have an image of this in our mind. The idea is that the cherubim are actually facing each other. Their wings go out on both sides. Most think that's exactly how it looks. And as you look at the particular Ark, it looks like a seat. And in that place, as we saw Earlier, as Scott read for us in Exodus 25, that's where God resided. That's where he was with his people. That was his, where his presence was. It was called the mercy seat. It's also understood as the place where God shows his mercy to his people by being in the midst of his people. It was a place where God dwelt, and he was in the midst. Now, how do you get to that mercy seat? You've got to go through the outer courts, sacrifices and the washings. You've got to go into the holy place. With the table and the bread and with the menorah and the lights, you have to go through the, uh, the incense that's constantly burning and constantly going on. Then you go into the past this curtain, this barrier, and then go into the Ark of the Covenant. And then in those, all these different things, very intricate. Now, why have I gone through all of this for you? Did they do enough? You see how busy they were? 
mean, that's a lot of stuff to put together. And it says here in our passage in verse 2, the tent was prepared. In other words, they were, they were putting this all together. Every time they set up this tent, a tabernacle, they had to put all this where it needed to go and put it exactly what, where it needed to be. And at the end of the day, though God was showing himself as being a people, a, a, a God who was in their midst, can't you see that by each one of these items, each one of these pieces of furniture, it seemed to indicate there's a barrier. There's another barrier. There's another barrier. That though God is in our midst, there's all of these walls that are keeping us, curtains and furniture, that's reminding us that God is holy and we are not. So though God was in the midst of his people, it was very difficult for them to understand that they can actually have access to him. Let's look at uh, point number two real quick. The services performed. The reason I want to go on and move on from there, though I could probably go into, and I could, I can go into detail. Um, I actually looked at, uh, I, I preached through the book of Leviticus. Um, actually, I preached three sermons in the book of Leviticus, and it goes through each one of the sacrifices. I preached um, on the latter half of the book of Exodus, and I went through all the pieces of furniture that's in the tabernacle and talked about how each one of them point to Christ. Um, I don't want to do that this morning because I need to be very careful with my time as a preacher, Right? Aren't you glad I'm going to do that? Well, I'm going to do that. And that's exactly what this preacher was also doing as well. He could have gone on all kinds of tangents about how Christ is connected to each one of those pieces. But notice what it says in verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, verse 5. It says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so the pastor here is saying we need to move on. And so I'm going to say we need to move on. And look at verse 6 and consider the preparations. Once this tent is set up or prepared, as it is, as it is shown to us in verses 2 through 5, then secondly what we see is these preparations are, are, are being made. And now this tent isn't just something that they can put in the middle of them and look at. It's a place where they actually go and do things. What exactly takes place in this tent? What's taking place here? Well, let's begin with the first section again. Verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, that is the holy place, performing the ritual duties. Now, what are these ritual duties? What are ritual duties are the oil has to be trimmed on the menorah. The olive oil has to be constant there so that the lights will never, the, the lamps, the seven lamps will never go out. So the priests are coming and going inside of this almost daily to take care of that oil that's in the lamps. Also, the fire within the incense has to constantly be burning. The fire that's in the altar there right before the curtain that goes into the most holy place has to be constantly burning and there has to be this smoke inside of there constantly and the incense has to be burning so they're constantly working to make sure that fire is taken care of and then finally the bread cannot get old and moldy they have to constantly be changing that out and keeping that together these are according to verse six the ritual duties the priests were coming and going but only the priests were able to go and only after they were prepared then it goes on in verse 7, and it says in the second section, verse 7, but into the second section, only the high priest, that's a unique priest, a particular priest, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and he but once a year. So the distinction here is that only the high priest is able to enter into that, holy, holy, that most holy place. And he's not able to go there any day he wants to, but only... On one day a year, which is the Day of Atonement, some of you know it by its 
Jewish name, which is Yom Kippur. And he goes into this place, but he doesn't go in there to lounge. It says that when the high priest goes in, this once a year time, he goes and he takes blood with him, according to verse 6. And not without taking blood. And the reason he has blood is so that he can offer, it says, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. He's going there, according to what it says in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God in what way? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this high priest was going into this most holy place to take blood, to put on the ark, and to do it and offer this as a remission of sin. Now this is interesting. Let me sum up just quickly. The earthly tent was prepared to display God in the midst of your people. But at the end of the day, doesn't it just declare loudly that there are people who separated from their God? And this tent was prepared and the priest began to go and do, and do all these ritual things and, do, and perform all these things. And though this was to help and assist the people, doesn't, doesn't it, isn't it interesting that it declares the fact that there's only a certain small group of people that are able to go into the holy place, that's the priest, and only the high priest once a year. And so doesn't it show by just its presence that though God is in our midst, we're still very much cut off. So the pastor now turns to his congregation. And he's going through all of that. Many of you are struggling right now, just like you would be if you were reading through Exodus 25 through 30-something. You're thinking, my goodness, what is all this? This is the prescribed way that God says he wants his people to approach him. And what God says goes. And the difficulty is, is that we don't approach God in any way we want to. There's not a coexisting. There's not, we can pick whatever avenue and whatever road and whatever way we pick, we can end up where God wants us. No. Scripture says there is one way. There's the way that God has prescribed for man to come into the presence of his God and maker. And this pastor is, is basically going on and on about what they know as the way that God has described for them to come into his presence. And today I could go into other faiths and I can go on and on about how they talk about how they are, are to come into the presence of their God and how they find their access to their God and how the systems and the rituals and the regulations and the place they need to go and the, and the people they need to see and the confessions they need to make, they can, they can go through all those litanies, can't they? And this pastor here is turning these people from this pluralistic understanding, this understanding of saying, can we have our Judaism and our Christianity? And he says this in verse 8, he turns, point number three, the Spirit's purpose in all of this. Point number three, the Spirit's purpose in all this. He says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, listen to this, is not yet opened. So we see two particular truths that this pastor wants these people to understand. The two particular truths are these. First, that this way of approaching God, as I just described in verses 1 through 7, has a limited access, point, the first truth he wants them to see, and they have a limited effectiveness. 
the second thing that he wanted his, his congregation to see. A limited access and a limited effectiveness. Look at the limited access. This sanctuary provided only a limited access to God. Why? Because it says in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit indicated to him the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, as long as the tabernacle is still standing, access to God has not yet been opened. Because we know that only the priest can go in there. And we know that nobody has access to God. Only the particular people who are priests or high priests have opportunity to go into the temple. So we know the Holy Spirit indicated to this pastor saying the way to the holy place is not open. Why? Because this tabernacle is still standing. It's still a declaration of the fact that our access is limited to our God. Notice what it says. This is really interesting historically. Verse 9 finishes out the sentence that was begun in verse 8. In parentheses it says, which is symbolic. That word is the word for parable. Which is a parable for the present age. It's interesting. Real quick. The book of Hebrews was written in the mid to latter 60s. 60 AD. Okay? Now get that. The book of Hebrews was written between the mid to latter 60s. In 70 A.D., the Roman Empire came in and destroyed the temple, wiped it out. It was obliterated. It is, there has never been a blood sacrifice or a priest order in the tabernacle since 70 A.D. Isn't that interesting? What is this pastor doing by the power of the Holy Spirit as it says here in verse 8? The Holy Spirit is telling this pastor to preach to his congregation and tell them that the tabernacle and the tent and this temple is not what you should be going to in order to have access to God. And that as long as it stands, it's going to be a declaration of the limited access you have to God. And it isn't interesting that in this passage, it was written between 65 to 68 A.D., before the temple fell, before they knew it was going to happen... It says in verse 8 that as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, this pastor was saying by the power of the Holy Spirit, this, one, this, this temple is no longer going to be standing one day. It's going to go away. And when it does, it's going to declare to all of us that that was never the way we were supposed to have access to God anyway. It was only supposed to show us the limited nature of our access to God. The second truth he wanted them to see was not only that this tabernacle was a limited, had limited access to God, but secondly, these services provided only limited effects for sin. These services provided limited effects for sin. Look at the latter part of verse 9. According to this arrangement, meaning all of the sacrifices and all of the things and the priests coming and going inside of the tent and the, and the most holy priest or the, most, the high priest going into the most holy place, According to these arrangements, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered. What's the problem with all these gifts and sacrifices and blood being shed? That, these gifts and sacrifices are offered, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You see... These sacrifices and gifts and all these other things were limited in its effect to do what God wanted it to do. In order for us to come before God, what do we have to be? 
perfect, it says here. Perfect in our conscience. It says it was unable to make, it cannot make perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We know from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says that the sacrifices had a role to play. You know what their role was? As they kept coming over and over and over again, they bring the sacrifices. You know what that was telling them? You're a sinner and you continue to sin. In other words, it says, but these sacrifices, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, but these sacrifices was a reminder of sins every year. It didn't clear our conscience. It just made us more aware of our sin. So what were these things for? Verse 10. These, these sacrifices and gifts were not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal, listen to this, underline this word, only with food and drink, verse 10, and various washings, regulations of the, for the body imposed or given to us for what? Until the time of Reformation. Until the time of Reformation. The question that was being asked, let me come back to it. Are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? I mean, look at that system of the tabernacle and all that they had to do and all the things they had to participate in in order to have access to their God. Are we doing enough? Can, are, are, this Christianity seems so empty. So, so, so there's not anything to do. Are we doing enough? He says all these washings and these drink offerings and these regulations, they were imposed upon the body for a time until the time of Reformation. Now, don't think of the Protestant Reformation. This is a Reformation or the idea of a new age, a new time when these things are going to be obsolete or, as it says in chapter 8, verse 13, vanish away. When is the time of the Reformation? When is the time when all of these things will be done away with and we will no longer have limited access to God? No longer will we have limited effectiveness as we seek to approach our God and that our conscience will be perfectly cleansed. I'm glad you asked. Look at chapter 9, verse 11, the very next verse. We're not gonna, I'm not going to preach this. I'm just going to read it to you because this is the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared... See, these people who had guilty consciences, who had no access to God. If you're asking the question, am I doing enough? Can I do enough to please my God? This is what I have to say to you this morning, brothers and sisters. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent. What's that greater and more perfect tent? Christ is in heaven in the very presence of God, the most holy place, the, the grammar teachers are going to kill me here, is not the mostest of holy places. Right? It's horrible grammar, but great theology. The holy place is in the presence of God. When Christ appeared, the high priest of the good things, verse 11, that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation... Though this tent was earthly that we just talked about. Verse 12, he entered. 
He went into this holy place right before the presence of God, verse 12, once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Securing, friends. Not doubting, not asking, have I done enough? Securing what Christ did on our behalf, and when He appeared and He entered into the holy places, He secured for us eternal redemption. Verse thirteen: For if the blood and goat, the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if it does that, if it sanctifies through the purification of the flesh, verse fourteen: How much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish before God, what does it say there? Purify our conscience. Make us perfect before God. From dead works to serve the living and true God. Have I done enough? The answer is no. But Christ is enough. In Christ, it is enough to approach our God. Do you see how coexisting is not the answer? Those who desire to coexist think that what we are after is morality. They think that Christianity is about us trying to do better. And that's what every other faith is about. We just need to live better and be nicer and talk nicer to one another. We are evil, wicked people, every one of us here. We have sin just as much as anybody else. Christianity is not about being better or moral or good. It's about standing before God holy. And God, the Almighty Creator, says there is one way, not many, but there is one way, and it's through Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished on the cross. And so this morning, friend, loved one, brothers and sisters, If you think living this faith is about doing better, trying harder, getting more effective at saying nice things to one another, you have missed it. It's about standing before God with a pure conscience. It's about living each day knowing that, you know what? I am a sinner deserving wrath because of the penalty of my sin, and because of Christ, I have eternal redemption. I am not condemned. I do not walk around with my head hanging down because my conscience is so overloaded because those who seek to constantly listen to your conscience and say, I just don't deserve it. I just don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You are saying by that, that you're leaning on your own merits. And you don't deserve it by your own merits. But when you consider your conscience, and it's guilty, and it's dreadful, and it's, it's heavy in your chest, and you think of your conscience and you say, in Christ I am purified. In Christ I am made right. Yes, I am a sinner, but in Christ I have absolute, pure access to our God. Because Christ is enough.
Let us pray.